What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com. We've never had it so good. This debate took place on the 22nd of January 2014 at the Royal Geographical Society in London. Thank you for that. Thanks earlier to Hannah. Thanks all of you for being here. Um, veterans uh, in the audience who've seen me do these before will know that I'm often in the habit of saying it's the right time and the right place with the right people for this uh, debate. Well, I'm going to use that line again tonight because it's certainly the right time on a day when, handily, you might say, for the Prime Minister, the unemployment rate fell to 7.1% and all the economic indicators appear to be going in the right direction. So certainly those uh, numbers would suggest we've never had it so good. We're in the right place because we are gathering in the royal borough of Kensington and Chelsea, which I think the numbers suggest is the most affluent borough in the entire country. Uh, so you lot have never had it so good. Uh, and we're with the right people, uh, a stellar lineup uh, laid before you here, all of whom I'm sure would... Uh, at least get through the first round in that debating uh, championship against primary school children. So um, we've got four very, very good speakers who are going to attack this subject. You've all voted on your way in, I hope. Uh, I will give you the results of that uh, indicative ballot, if you like, uh, later on, once we've heard from our four speakers, and then you will vote again uh, once you've heard the four inspiring arguments that are going to be laid before you. The rules are that they each have about 10 minutes uh, to speak. I will ding or ping uh, the glass at around nine. That's a signal for them to wind up. Uh, and I will start uh, bashing the glass repeatedly if they go beyond 10. So you'll hear that, I'm sure. Uh, and uh, then there'll be a chance for you to uh, make your own contributions. I'm going to ask for really sharp, short questions, if we can, rather than long speeches, because you'll have heard those already. Uh, so without further ado, let's get to this live question for uh, the country. How, we've never had it so good. Is that right or is that wrong? And first up, to make the case that we have never had it so good, is a man who I'm sure would like to be known as the biographer of the great Edmund Burke, who would like to be known perhaps as the finest brain on our backbenches, uh, perhaps as the Member of Parliament for uh, Hereford, but is perhaps fated to be known as the man who dared square up to a red-faced David Cameron in a commons bar. You will know that he was the man who clashed 
as uh, the leader of a Tory rebellion against the Prime Minister on the subject of Lord's reform, with the Prime Minister apparently poking in his direction and telling him his behaviour was not honourable. I think it's an Eton thing. Our first speaker for the motion that we've never had it so good, Jesse Norman. Well, thank you very much indeed, uh, Mr Chairman. Uh, um, especially for that uh, entirely unnecessary uh, reference to my schooling. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for coming along today. It's a fantastic honour to be able to address the collective wisdom of an intelligence squared audience in such um, wonderful circumstances. And I'm particularly honoured uh, to be able uh, uh, to tell you that I'm teamed up, as you will know, with um, the gorgeous, the effervescent Rachel Johnson. Uh, I am simply the warm-up act for her um, grand aria, ladies and gentlemen, our tiny canapé to the full smorgasbord, all-you-can-eat rhetorical feast um, of John Soniana. For those of you familiar with Austin Powers, uh, I am a mere mini-me to her, Vanessa Kensington. And while we're on the topic of 1960s parodies, ladies and gentlemen, may I also welcome Rod Little and Will Self. <laughs> Two men whose combined lugubriousness make Munch's painting The Scream look like a frolicsome yodel. <laughs> with the Von Trapp... <laughs> with the Von Trapp family in the High Alps. Uh, undoubtedly, ladies and gentlemen, our opponents tonight will treat us all to numerous uh, tales of gloom uh, and doom. There will be lots of downward-pointing charts uh, predictions of catastrophe, even Armageddon, all laced, all laced with that uh, gritty, with it, lacerating social comedy, sorry, commentary, <laughs> which you would expect from a columnist at The Spectator and a past winner of the Bollinger Everyman P.G. Woodhouse Prize. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it is my happy task tonight to propose the motion that we've never had it so good. It's a clever twist on those famous words reputedly uttered by uh, Harold Macmillan in 1959. Of course, Macmillan's actual words were, most of our people have never had it so good. And that was true for the great mass uh, of people in work. Real pay had risen sharply in the 1950s. But Macmillan had a deeper point also in mind, uh, that even for the generations that had lived through the agonies, the slaughter of the Second World War, in a country for which rationing was a very recent memory, it was important to have some perspective and to recognise that society was renewing itself and that economic recovery was underway. And that by implication, the horrible sacrifices of war were being redeemed. Now here today, we have an economy that is recovering slowly, as our chairman has reminded us, from a great catastrophe. But I want to enter a, an early caveat with you, if I may, a disclaimer. The, the motion says we've never had it so good. And I want to ask, who is this we? It would be absurd to suggest that absolutely every single person in the world, or even everyone in Britain at this particular moment, was better off than they ever have been. Clearly, at any given time, there will be some people and some social groups for whom the motion is not true. The England cricket team, for example, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, recently hammered in the ashes by the Australians. Or, or Francois Hollande. <laughs> who's had a tough couple of weeks, although I must say you have to love a political system in which even an accountant can get lucky. 
how he must have wished he could get away with it as his predecessors had done. Notably, of course, Jacques Chirac, uh, whose lovemaking skills earned him the epithet trois minutes douche compris. <laughs> I won't translate it. Um, equally, some people have done better than they might ever have imagined. Uh, while we're on the topic of sex, how many of you know uh, Peter Crouch? Is that a familiar name to an intelligent squared audience, ladies and gentlemen? Uh, six foot eight, plays for Stoke City, married to Abby Clancy. So um, someone asked him recently what he would have been if he hadn't been a professional uh, uh, footballer, to which the answer was, a virgin. <laughs> so Peter's done a lot better, I think, it's fair to say, than he was expecting to do uh, some time ago. But more seriously, there is a large group, one large group in our society, who might very seriously question the motion before us this evening. Young people the so-called jilted generation. With record levels of youth unemployment, high household debts, and a shortage of housing, you can see why many of them feel the baby boomers have raided the till at their expense. But even this can be overstated. In the last 50 years, educational opportunity has exploded. In 1960, just 22,000 people got an undergraduate degree. Two years ago, it was over 350,000. In 1960, it would be highly unusual for a young person to go abroad. Today, they are everywhere from Torrin Molinos to Timbuktu. In 1960, a telephone was a fixed appliance, often kept in the hall for those families that had one. Today, no young person would be seen dead without the latest iPhone or Samsung to text on. So the real question is this. Overall, all things considered, has there been an era in human history, or even British history, when we could collectively, rationally prefer to be living than now? And the answer to that question is no. Just look at the facts. Over the past 50 years, the average per capita income of the average person on the, on the planet, wherever they are, in real terms, adjusted for inflation, has gone up by a factor of three, three times. Lifespan is up by 30%. Child mortality is down two-thirds across the planet. Per capita food production is up by a third. We are a wildly innovative species, and that rate of innovation is increasing. Polio used to kill or harm millions of people every year. Today, it has barely ceased to exist. Huge strides have been made in combating malaria. We've even bred new strains of infertile female mosquitoes, which sounds, I must say, a hell of a lot easier than having to fit all the males with condoms. <laughs> That's the joy of the division of labour, of technology, out of free markets. That's why this audience can leave tonight in their foreign cars and eat hamburgers, pasta, or sashimi for dinner, none of which was even imaginable five decades ago. This being an intelligent squared audience, of course, to any of you who might be minded to vote against the motion, I say, think of a world without sashimi. <laughs> and take the position of women. Today, there are many countries in the world in which the position of women is still shamefully one of subservience and abuse. But who can doubt that in this country, indeed in many countries around the world, the position of women is better now than it ever has been. Until the second half of the 19th century, married women were essentially regarded as their husband's property in this country. Just 50 years ago, before the great white goods revolution, most women's lives were dominated by domestic chores. You may feel not much has changed, um, but it has, the statistics tell us. Now, though the situation is far from perfect today, more than ever before, women have a world of educational and life opportunity before them. Now, that does not mean that everything is rosy. Far from it. Things are hardly perfect now. Look at the financial crisis we've just had to endure. 
History is not always an unbroken progression of, uh, uh, towards freedom and prosperity. Technology has massively enriched us, but we live under a shadow. And that shadow, whether it be environmental change, terrorism or nuclear holocaust, will continue to hang over us. Democracy itself is struggling as politics becomes apparently ever further removed from people's everyday lives. And of course, we've had colossal failures inside and outside of government, as we have had ever since government itself was invented. We have to keep asking why and working to make sure that we never repeat those mistakes, though we know in advance that we will. Moral principles and moral values do not change, and it's our obligation as a present generation, the obligation of all of us, not just of those in positions of authority, to ask in a deep and considered way how those principles can best be applied to help others to protect and sustain our society for the benefit of future generations. Ladies and gentlemen, we have never had it so good. And it's precisely because we've never had it so good, because we've had that priceless privilege of being born when we were born, that we owe this obligation now to others. So I submit to you then, the facts are absolutely clear. In the facts name, I ask you to ignore the gloomsters, the naysayers, the professional miserabilists, the Jeremiahs, the pessimists, and above all, to support the motion. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you very much to Jesse Norman. Our next speaker, I don't know whether he includes a gloom store or professional miserabilist on his uh, business card, but he certainly could put there acclaimed novelist, journalist and broadcaster, a past Booker Prize nominee, and the man who, among whose many claims to fame is to have made the phrase epiphenomenal imbroglio trend on Twitter and other social media in a TV discussion of hacking to argue against the motion, the first speaker against the motion that we've never had it so good. Please welcome Will Self. Men and women. It's not customary at debates of this sort to stoop to ad hominem remarks. We argue things as intelligent, conscientious people on the basis of the arguments themselves, not on the basis of stereotyping the nature of our debating opponents. But that being said, <laughs> Richard Strauss's four last songs are some of the most beautiful leader, in my opinion, that have ever been written. And I came here this evening purely on the understanding that Jesse Norman would be singing. I am bitterly disappointed <laughs> to have instead heard the sort of second-rate piffle <laughs> that comes out of any Tory MP's mouth when you prod them in the belly. Tears 
are running down the insides of my eyes. <laughs> but I'm too big a man to show it. And I will turn my attention to the motion. We've never had it so good, is the motion, contra what Mr. Norman said, cleverly trying to shift the goalposts, but in my opinion, not really managing to shift them that far. Most statements in language are, by definition, semantic statements. They're statements about meaning. On that basis, I would like to dispute not just the motion, but every single term in the motion. My argument is not going to be about statistics or perceptions. This would be an insult to you as an audience. My argument will be about the meaning of this motion. And on that basis, I anticipate that you will agree with what I say and vote it down. And the reason you will vote it down is because the motion treats you purely as a member of a spurious collectivity. We've never had it so good. Doctors say that in medicine, there are no such things as statistics, only individuals. And in the unfortunate event that you are diagnosed with a terminal illness, I think you will feel the full force of those words. Why should we be a we at all? Recall one of the most chilling futuristic novels about totalitarian society was called simply We by Yevgeny Zamyatin, a picture of a ghastly society in which vast phalanxes of people were compelled to go about their business treated as an undifferentiated mass. By subscribing to the We in We've Never Had It So Good, you're placing yourself in the same framework. Ours is a political culture that is based on a calculus of benefit. We've never had it so good. The principal ideologue of British society is Jeremy Bentham and his utilitarianism, which puts forward the idea that the aim of society should be to achieve the greatest good stroke happiness of the greatest number. But I put it to you that it is precisely this Benthamite ideology that derogates the individual and removes the individual from her immediate experience and alienates her from the social and political process. We've never had it so good. Let's have a little look at never for a while. <laughs> Let's go to Never Neverland. How do you know? How do you know? Can you look inside the thoughts and feelings and emotions 
of your spouse for many years who is sitting right next to you at this moment and has vast areas of their soul that are effectively walled off from you. <laughs> and yet, and I wouldn't have it any other way, <laughs> what would be the point of participating in a relationship with anybody who is entirely legible to you? None whatsoever. We've never had it so good. We, these people who know so little of each other. This we've never is an extension of a tyrannous subjectivity over not only the person sitting next to you, but the entire room. And in the context and the feeling of the motion, the entire society, and yes, by implication, the entire globe. I promised you no statistics. No numbers. And I won't give you any. But take the utilitarian philosophy where it leads you, and it tells you that human increase can only be a good thing. After all, there's so much more good to be have when there are more of us. Yeah? So on the utilitarian calculus, we'll be in really good shape when all day, every day, we're packed in just as tightly as we are in this hall. Then we'll really never have had it so good. <laughs> this is not a specious argument. It is indeed the underlying prolegomena of the utilitarian position. It's an endless yea-saying to more of everything. It's an endless yea-saying to knowing the cost of everything because cost can be quantified and Bentham loved to quantify. But you can't cost the real value of life just as you cannot know what other people are thinking and feeling. And philosophies that base themselves on such specious quantification throw up specious demagogues. It's up to us to be individuals, to discover our own nature of the good and to respect other people's idea of the good as well and not treat them as simply people on a production line or in a factory. Jonathan Friedland began by referring to economic statistics. Aren't you bored with them? Don't you moan every time you hear one pronounced? Ours has become a culture in which economic statistics have a fashion. And have you noticed, those of us who are my age or older, quinquagenarians, when we were younger, it was something called the balance of payments deficit people were worried about. You don't hear much about that anymore. The difference between the value of what we export and what we import. What you hear about now is consumer demand. Consumer demand. You could have no more telling example of what our society has become, how soulless our society has become than that it measures 
its moral and spiritual health on the basis of whether it's buying enough shit. <laughs> I don't want to make a big deal about this. <laughs> but you may have noticed one other thing besides my lugubrious voice and my lugubrious face, which hides a happy soul. <laughs> a happy agnostic soul who's happy to live in a world in which there may well be a God. And that is that I came here this evening with no notes and no prepared speech, because I believe in what I say. So I ask you to reject the motion and recover your soul. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you to... Thanks very much for that. Those of you playing Will Self Bingo, I wonder how many of you had Quinn Quinagerian or Quinn Quinagerian. <laughs> it wasn't on my list, but um, tremendous. So we move now to our next speaker, the, who will be the second speaker for the motion, the former editor of The Lady magazine, journalist who writes a weekly column for the Mail on Sunday and The Big Issue and the author of novels Notting Hell and Shire Hell, I'm sure popular reading in this audience, and has spent the uh, last week in rather intriguing fashion, which I hope she'll share with you. Please welcome to speak for the motion that we've never had it so good, Rachel Johnson. Jonathan, thank you very much for your introduction. It's always nice to come to the podium not to be introduced as the sister of somebody. And um, it reminds me that for several years, the Evening Standard only referred to me as the penis-obsessed sister of Boris, <laughs> uh, despite my best efforts. But I suppose we all have our stuff that we can't successfully get rid of, as Charlie Brooks might think when, <laughs> as he tried to dispose of his carefully created collection of lesbian porn. Um, we have heard from Jesse. We are going to hear from Rod, as the Bible says, and there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, <laughs> which means I think it is my turn, I'm afraid, to take the floor and to regale you with some statistics and I hope punctually convince you of the argument that despite what our Jeremiah says, we have never had it so good. Um, I know that Jesse took some of his much reviled statistics from a book called The Rational Optimist by Matt Ridley, which I'm going to credit as I don't think Jesse did. Jesse, is that fair? <laughs> and um, as we're on the subject of Matt Ridley, let me let's just pause to consider how in one man we have an embodiment of somebody who, on a, in a terms of personal 
developmental growth has really had it very good. A man who brought down Northern Rock now has a column on the Times, a Viscountcy, a seat in the Lords, whose estates in Northumberland roll over thousands of acres and who's about to make many more millions from fracking. In one man, we can see that it is possible in this country to have it pretty good. But moving beyond Matt Ridley for a second and onto his statistics, 99% of Americans officially designated as poor have running water, lose, and a fridge. 95% have TVs. I know this is... Uh, these are things that people like to have in their lives, Will, even though they are evidence of consumption, which is clearly a bad thing in your book. We are becoming richer by the statistics that my colleague and panellist Jesse Norman stated. And our, we are cleaner, freer, richer, even cleverer. Apparently, there's something called a levelling up caused by an equalisation of nutrition, stimulation and diversity of childhood experience. Way hey. Exactly. We're also becoming a less violent society. There's a book by Steven Pinker that I was encouraged to read by Hannah Kay, who's our genius, <laughs> genius Lockie tonight, um, in which Steven Pinker claims we are even winning the war on war. I would conclude my opening remarks by saying that if you vote for our motion, your wife will get bigger, even bigger breasts. And it's much more likely that you will end up driving a BMW, but those remarks would be unseemly in such a polite society as the RGS. I hear you all thinking about Will Self's remarks, that all this consumption is bad, all this growth, all these widescreen TVs, all this Sky TV as a human rights, as a human right even on Benefit Street. And I agree, the better things are for man, the worse they tend to be for the planet. I accept that. These are the two trump cards our pessimists, the apocaholics, always produce. Climate change, Africa, I predict. Actually, I don't predict, because I don't know about what Rod's going to say. But we're not debating climate change in Africa. And if we were, I would have to point out to you that our air, rivers, lakes and seas are much cleaner than they were. And even in America, carbon monoxide emissions are 75% down on 75 years ago. And I would also have to point out that Rod Liddell himself is a climate change denier. Is that right, Rod? No. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. You just mocked the Prime Minister for saying that our recent nasty weather was the result of global warming rather than, for example, the what you, any fool in UKIP knows, which is it's a result of, obviously, his decision to legalise gay marriage. I Didn't you? No. Yes, you did. No. You say no. that global warming is basically just the normal operating system for winter. No. So, let us take what I presume will be Rod's line about climate change, forget about Africa... Good luck with that, but... ..and return to the motion. So we're here to show that for man, if not for the planet, things are getting better all the time. But we would be stupid to ignore some economic statistics and hard truths. The public finances are, as Will Self might put it, shot to shit. As even, and we have Alistair, Darla, Alistair Darling told us the other day, it's going to get worse, you can feel it. Ed Triple Dip Balls would like us to think there's no jam tomorrow and soon, in fact, we're all going to be living in the gulag of Britannia. But the economy is growing. We've had 
unemployment 7.1%, and we are growing faster than any other major economy. And as David Cameron said in his New Year message, I want to look at Will Sell's face as I am about to quote David Cameron's New Year message. Our country is on the rise. Completely impassive. Oh, well. Um, anyway, David Cameron knows too much optimism is even toxic for the Tories because he wants us to vote for him for fear of finding something worse in the Ed's woodshed. OK, let's move on. There, this, this generation has left the next generation in hock, but we can't cry too much into our frothy Nespresso lattes. Here's why. Jeremy Warner wrote in a Telegraph blog, stop whinging even the young have never had it so good. Qu I'm now quoting in case of plagiarism. Repeated foreign holidays, conspicuous consumption and all the creature comforts under the sun are no longer the exclusive preserve of the privileged few. Many of the young enjoy lifestyles their parents could only dream of at a similar age. He also pointed out that wealth is eventually recycled to younger generations, either because it is squandered, because it's inherited or taxed. Jonathan mentioned that I've been somewhere. What did you say? Intriguing? So if I seem a bit below par, it's because for the last seven days, I've been living on one pound a day for the purposes of a BBC documentary within some of the two poorest boroughs in Britain. And the exercise was designed to prove whether those in benefits really are living high on the hog, which is quite a live topic at the moment. And I found the opposite. I lived in two households, both were in the grip of direst food poverty. These households outfixed outgoings on energy, on their debts, on rent, on everything, on fixed costs, left them with, I promise you, only £3 a day each to spend per family on food. I also found that these deep cuts to the welfare state that were across the board have led, and I can't believe I'm saying this, to some resurgence in what used to be called, until this notion was dispensed with, big society. I found an outpouring of compassion. I met a woman called Diane in Clacton-on-Sea. Now, I know this sounds like Dave Cameron saying, I once met a black man in Portsmouth, but do bear with me. She fed dozens of people every day, dozens of the homeless and the hungry, and she was badgering local supermarkets to donate food rather than throw it away because that's what they like to do. So she could start a food bank. It was as if I had a walk-on part in Les Miserables, only this time it was directed by Richard Curtis, because honestly, the love was all around. Oh, I'm getting emotional now. Because there were soup kitchens, food banks, Samaritans, night shelters, churches, Muslim support centres, free blankets, you could get your clothes washed, you could see an advisor about trying to find out whether your, why your housing benefit had been cut or you're being sanctioned. You could go online to look for a job, and this was all not run by the state, by the voluntary sector. 
Now, I know not all on benefits are deserving, as we've seen from Benefit Street, but all the adults I met wanted to work but couldn't because they had criminal records, they had disabilities, they had children, they couldn't afford the childcare. But still, I found no one too sick or too bonkers or too foreign to be helped by someone or at least filmed by a Channel 4 TV crew. I'm not saying big society has replaced the state. It hasn't and it shouldn't. But we need and we have both in this country, which is more than I can say for most other places. Finally, I'd like to turn to the economy. I know it's dull, but as G.K. Chesterton said, the problem with capitalism is not that there are too many capitalists, but not enough capitalists. We've seen the economic statistics today, but there is better to come. I've mentioned one brother. My other brother, Leo, has written a book called Turnaround Challenge, and he has advised me to tell you this. In his brilliant new book, Turnaround Challenge, which is on my chair. Jonathan, can you hold it up, please? <laughs> hold up Leo Johnson's new book, OUP 20 pounds. What he tells me is this, and I can't claim I thought this myself, unlike Will. Um, he says, we will see a surge in capitalists as micro-production returns and new technologies come on stream. Bear with me. Quote, Chinese labour costs are rising, whereas the costs for micro-manufacturing and technologies like the RepRap open-source 3D printer have the potential to grow exponentially, pushes prices down further, pushing prices down further. What this means is really important. Chinese labour costs are rising. British labour costs are falling. British labor, that means we are going to be competitive again. Leo told me in a text, pot noodle, Otis elevator, caterpillar, GE, all reshoring, bringing production back to Britain. The future is local and a return to local manufacturing is imminent. So I would say in peroration, our grounds for optimism are anchored in the past. We are seeing, think of me on Benefit Street, think of Leo's pot noodles, we are seeing a return to two things in society that we know well, homo faber, man as creator, and man as a social animal, big society coming in where the, state, the state's hand doesn't reach far enough to keep them safe. The distributed economy draws our inst on our instinct not just to create, but to look after each other, whether from the top down or the bottom up. In sum, I would say, please do not buy Rod Liddell's forthcoming box set of doom. I beg to propose the motion. I hope, um, I hope the record shows and all of you have witnessed that I was very right on, sound and guardianish and refused to define a woman by her brothers and that she then mentioned not one, not two, but three of them. In, uh, oh, did you only mention two? I thought, I thought um, Joe got a mention, but no. maybe that was implicit. Um, OK, I've, I've, between the lines, I thought there was a third there. Anyway, we move on to our final speaker uh, against the motion. He began and was a former editor of BBC Radio 4's Today programme, where he was professionally required to repress his opinions and be studiedly neutral 
and boy, has he made up for it since. <laughs> he is now an author and journalist who writes a regular column for The Sunday Times, The Spectator magazine, and The Sun. Uh, speaking against the motion, please welcome Rod Little. Thanks a lot, Johnny. Thanks. Thanks for that, mate. Um, the problem I have is that, intuitively, I, I feel I ought to agree with the proposition. Because, after all, while it may be that the gulf between rich and poor is larger than at any time since the War of the Roses, and that executive pay is an ever-increasing multiple of the money earned by people on the shop floor, and that those people on the shop floor have debts squatting on their backs like a vast toad, and all these other indicators of economic in inequality, uh, which suggest that the rich are getting richer and the poor are being robbed blind. At least today, we have the right people running the country. After decades of a futile experiment, obsessed by that chimera of social mobility, we have at last wisely succumbed and are once again led by the same sorts of people who led us at the time of Lord Salisbury, when Britain was at its zenith. Not just the politicians, although, of course, they're preeminent amongst this group, but everywhere there is money to be made or power to be had in the judiciary, in the City of London, in journalism, the 7% of the country who attended public schools and the best public schools occupy up to 80% of the top jobs. And indeed comprise all of my fellow panellists. Didn't you? Oh, you're, well, no, you're on my side, though. And the moderator and the organiser, quite rightly as well, quite rightly they're in charge. And it's largely these people, these wonderful people, who tell us repeatedly that we have never had it so good. And they also tell us, smiling out of their shiny faces, <laughs> that we've never had it so good and we're all in it together. So I think it would simply behove me to agree and move on ever upwards. A simple answer to whether we've ever had it so good, we being the country as a whole, is to ask how happy people are. And a simple answer to that question, are we happy now, to look inside those souls which Will was talking about, uh, is of course that we're not. We know this because various studies, including one commissioned by the BBC, have asked if people are happy. And far fewer admit to this state of mind than did so in the 1950s, when we were plagued with rickets, smallpox and Sir Anthony Eden. I have some misgivings about these studies of happiness. The whole idea came uh, of a gross national happiness index was dreamed up by Bhutan's dragon king, Yigmi Singhi Wangchuk, in 1972. Largely, I think, as a means of assuring his citizens that whilst they were impecunious peasants, clinging to the side of a mountain and subsisting on a diet of yak's milk while being presided over by an obese autocrat who thought he was a dragon, they were nonetheless overflowing with great bonhomie and merriment. More recently, the UN's done the same sort of study and into happiness, and invariably the Danes always come out top. They have many admirable qualities, the Danes, but they're also a singularly gullible and deluded people. <laughs> Indeed, it may well be the case that the Danes are in a constant state of euphoria simply because they are not Swedish. <laughs> anyway, Britain does very badly in this index of happiness thing. We come at the bottom. A more reliable means of testing whether we are happy or not uh, is to see how many of us are depressed. One in two of us, according to the latest report. 
one in two of us. That never used to be the case. I don't know how reliable the figures are, but it certainly seems to be a theme of our time that increasing numbers of, of us are afflicted by one or another kind of existential despair or misery. We've seen the growth of mysterious illnesses, difficult to define, such as ME, yuppie flu, as it was once called, and fibromyalgia, that peculiar affliction which apparently results in debilitating aches and pains. A million of us have ME or fibromyalgia, apparently. The symptoms of these two illnesses, along with depression, are lethargy, lassitude, melancholy, irritability, an inability to sleep, an inability to rise, a perpetual sense of torpor and dissatisfaction. They are expressions, you might argue, of an alienation or an anomie or an atomization. Our doctor's clinics and our A&D wards are full of another new phenomenon, the worried well, people who are simply anxious and deeply unhappy. And then, before all that, there's stress. Stress now accounts for the largest single number of days people take off work. There are lots of different figures around. The latest I've seen from the Health and Safety Executive puts a number at 105 million days lost per year. 75% of us say we suffer from stress. And this stuff, this sort of despair, this sort of misery, is as defining of our times as an Xbox or a politician with his hand in your wallet. We simply didn't have this before. And you will note that in all cases there's a frustration and an annoyance, or in extreme cases, a pure loathing of society or the stuff of society, even with stress, where the ailment is most popularly assigned to an imposition placed upon the individual by an external agency, usually the employer. One commentator, I forget who, suggested rather callously when presented with a list of the symptoms of ME that these people were suffering from nothing more than, quotes, life. Well, indeed. And if that is the case, and ME is not the consequence of a retrovirus, which by now we can be pretty clear it isn't, then over here in this country we have life wrong. Where does it all come from, this stuff? My own suspicion is that it's been imposed upon us by a system which certainly ensures that a small number of people, the people I've mentioned earlier, have never had it so good. For example, it's not merely that wage rates are criminally low and have been dropping comparatively for years, and that for millions of us, working for a living does not provide nearly enough to get by. It is also the uncertainty of that work. It's the short-term contracts, the temporary work, the zero-hour contracts, the complete absence for many millions of working people of security, of employment, of a predictable future, still less of that old discredited thing, a job for life, which is now used in a derisory sense. And the trouble is that as human beings, we like predictability and we like security. But the new working patterns, the unlimited free movement of labour and capital, imposes on us a fraught and frenetic transience. A short-term contract ends and we chase down the next one, which may be 100 miles away. We get on our bikes, just as his lot told us to do 25 years ago. And then that contract ends, and we're off again. And we do so with increasing haste because we're assured by the people who have never had it so good that if we do not put our skates on and chase that job down, don't you worry, mate. There'll be 250,000 people entering the country within the year, every year, who will do it quicker than you and a hell of a lot cheaper than you. And they tell us this 
under the guise of enlightened liberal internationalism, just in case we might complain. And so we chase at the behest of those who have never had it so good, paid less and less comparatively every time, never sure when or even if the next job is going to come up or how long it will last. And there's a knock-on. The amount of time we spend in any one place has contracted and contracted over the last 25 years to the point where only one in five of us now know who our neighbours are anymore. And we don't put down roots in a community. Our neighbour now is simply someone we shove out the way to get on the bus of a morning. It's a sort of rival. And remember, our houses, our very houses, are not homes anymore. They're no longer solid things in which we raise a family and become part of a community they are instead, or they have become, liquid, a form of collateral to be flogged so that we can move on and pursue an illusion of affluence, because that's what it is, an illusion. Of course, we are empowered by the people who have never had it so good. In everything these days, as Will rightly pointed out, we are consumers, customers, and we are empowered by choice. Endless, endless choice about everything. Where to send the kids to school, for example. Twelve local schools all competing against each other for your brats. And who knows, maybe you'll get them into that half-decent Church of England school if you rent a temporary flat by the school gates and maybe fillet the vicar. <laughs> when you're suffering from cancer, you are empowered by choice. You're empowered to trawl through and find the best available treatment, even though you may not know what the hell you are looking for. Should you get your foreign-owned water company to provide your electricity? Or should you stick with the foreign-owned gas company to provide your electricity? It doesn't matter a bugger. They're all part of the same cartel which has just put up your tariffs by four times the inflation rate. But you search, you search, because you're empowered to do so. This superfluous choice, this endless, remorseless choice, which we are enjoined to believe is a good thing. But it's not. It's a con job. All of it is a con job. It is an illusion of empowerment, and it is an illusion of affluence, as anyone who, when they look at their mortgage statements, will be able to tell you. And that's why... We have to reject this motion. It's no surprise that in the current system, operating under the current way we are forced to live at the moment, that we are ill and unhappy, depressed, stressed out, ill with it all. We've swapped the communitarian for the remorselessly individualistic at the behest of an economic system which is alienating and dehumanising. And it's hardly a surprise, as a corollary, that we have also disengaged in increasing numbers from the political process since 1992. These days, increasing numbers of us either don't vote at all or we vote way, way beyond the mainstream. And we feel, as a consequence, disenchanted and powerless. And it's this system which does indeed, nonetheless, benefit a small tranche of our population. And that tranche which will, from time to time, 
trot out that old sweet lie. We're all in it together, and we've never had it so good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, as promised, you've heard four sparkling speeches there from this end of the room. And before we do uh, throw it open and before I give you the results of the, uh, your voting as you came into the room, let me just see, see if I can press our four speakers just with a question to each of them, uh, just to clarify some points. I'm going to begin with our first speaker, Jesse Norman. Uh, and I just, you know, you've sketched a picture there of how we've never had it so good. Uh, answer this. Now uh, the statistics are that there are 500,000 people in the, country, in the country using food banks... Uh, and the majority of those in poverty are said to be uh, working, the figures when the coalition took office were less than one-tenth of that number. Around 40,000 people were relying on food banks, and now it's half a million. Given that leap, uh, how can you say we've never had it so good? Well, as you know, um, Jonathan, I wasn't um, anchored in specific facts about where we are now, and there's nothing that anyone should take any pressure out of or anything other than you know, a feeling of gloom and sadness about the situation with food banks. The truth of the matter is that it has been rising literally exponentially for about 15 years now. And um, it is not a new phenomenon, but the numbers are new. And no one really knows what the drivers of it are, although there's obviously... enough money to pay you for food. No, 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 of course, of course, uh, 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 that's true. But there are also... There was also a question of whether or not those people were, as it were, finding informal ways of getting food before and are now going to food banks. So the question is, what's the actual... You know, is the size of the problem um, appropriately... Re does it appropriately show us what it is? And, of course, um, we don't know, and that's why I think um, more... Um, more reflection on it. And, and frankly, I don't think anyone can deny that the economic crisis we're in is a, is a part of it. And therefore, hopefully, recovery will pull these people out of that situation. Thank you. Let's put something to you, Will Self. And you made the point that this is something unknowable. We can't know how the, how the lives of others are lived, can't gaze into their souls. But just... And obviously, that's true about people's inner lives and emotionally. But materially, would you concede some of the points that have been made on this side of the table that in just in terms of material well-being, that we've never had it so good? I think an Ayurvedic doctor from India once said to me, only in the West is the term psychosomatic an insult. <laughs> Mind and the body are one. I refuse to answer the question. It's meaningless to me in the context of my argument. I argue for the whole woman and the whole man. I argue for us as spiritual beings. Are our spiritual lives not made possible, though, if people have a roof over their head, their houses are warm, and they are able to move around? These, uh, are, all, these are all clearly desiderata, but I, I draw your attention to, to my honourable seconder here, who I think did a very good job on that front of showing that we're the correlation between uh, absolute material situation and mental and spiritual health is not proven at all. And then let's just talk about this tricky concept of relative poverty, mm. yeah? Because that's what we seem to be skirting around here. There's some notion of bore abroad and afoot in our society that 
You know, as long as you can watch TV and buy a can of extra strength lager that you've got nothing to complain about <laughs> in some way. And you're saying that that's a bogus notion because even if materially you have more here than you would if you were living in other parts of the world where they don't have those basics, that doesn't go to how you feel. Well, it's, a, myst it's a mystery to me why these uh, extremely wealthy people in the city really need their vast bonuses if they don't believe in relative poverty. All right. Because gone. they quite clearly don't need to be relatively wealthier. <laughs> yeah? Duh. Um, <laughs> thank you. I'm just thinking the, the professor of contemporary thought. The, um, let's put it to you, Rachel. Rachel Johnson, let's put to you this thing. What, you said it from your own experience of the last week, that people that you were among were living on... They had three pounds left over to feed their families. Given your own direct experience of that number, how can you stand up and say they've never had it so good? Well, in 1957, when Harold Macmillan said we've never had it so good, a man who was in employment with three children was in real terms worse off than somebody who is unemployed today on benefit with three children, with the child tax credits and the child benefits which accrue to him and his family. So, it's again, it's completely relative. You're isn't making it? a comparison yeah. to how it was before. Well, exactly. Sure. And finally, to you, before we open up, Rod Little, um, you talked about those people uh, who were very squeezed and pressed at the bottom, people living on zero hours, the insecure. Uh, it, and, and the stressed out. For everyone else, and, you know, uh, uh, we'll self-introduce the notion of the Benthamite utilitarian calculation. For everybody else, would you concede any ground there and say those people, and you're right, it's not universal, but for those people, <coughs> they have never had it so good, and it's the people at the bottom who are being left out. Or is your picture across the whole country? Uh, it's across, a, well, it's, a, it's outside London largely, uh, which is something which often seems to be forgotten. Once you do go outside London, you see that the principal form of employment are pound shops, door-to-door -door selling. These are things which generate almost no income for the people who do them. They're usually on less than minimum wages because they're on shorter hours and the firms could get away with paying them less less than the minimum wage as a consequence. It is a vast, vast number of people. Um, I think the middle class sometimes deludes itself that it's well off. I don't know that uh, it is quite as well off as it thinks it is. Uh, and we will see that when, um, when, the, when the next property slump comes around. Thank you. Um, let's give you the results of, the, of, uh, of your vote as you came in. Um, this is just uh, before you'd managed to be swayed by any of the arguments. Uh, those of you who were for the motion that we've never had it so good were 47%, so nearly half the room was with this side of the table. Those against the motion that disagreed that we've uh, never had it so good, 24% with this side of the table. And then those who were don't knows, 29%. So nearly a third of the room was uh, on the fence, and uh, it is those 29% that I say to you, both sides, uh, it's up to you to try and persuade them, win them over to your side. Let's now open it all up, and here's questions, thoughts, contributions. The pithier and sharper, the better. Uh, and let's see some hands go up. So we've got a hand over there. And what I'll do is I'll make sure there's microphones in place, then it's to you. And is there a third 
microphone. Anyone over here wants to say anything? Because we have a microphone there for you. Yes, lady there. So if we can get those three microphones in position, and, I, and I've noticed the people up there. Let's start with uh, whoever had it first here. Yeah. Do I need to give my name? Nope. <laughs> can, if you like. <laughs> my hero... It depends what you're going to say, I suppose. My hero, Rod Little, has argued that it's only a privileged few who have never had it so good. I would argue, from a long lifetime of experience, that, oddly enough, there is a disadvantaged few, or even perhaps a disadvantaged many, who have never had it so good. I mean the people in our society who have mental illnesses, mental impairments and disabilities. When I was growing up, and I've got long years of personal experience of this, people with these disabilities were sneered at, excluded, put to one side, ignored and disrespected. All my life, and, you know, I'm <laughs> rather older than I'd like to be now, this has been improving. People have been offered more respect. This is not to do with money, although there has been much more money offered to help people, generally speaking. OK. It's a big cultural change for the better. So this disadvantaged group of people has never had it so good. Thank you. It's a different angle on debate, but very much uh, appreciated. Let's go to the speaker up here. Questioner up here. Uh, good Thank evening. Um, in defence of Jeremy Bentham, we are bodies and souls, but by the same token, if you help the body, you do help the soul. And I'm struck that um, the idea of a cancer diagnosis has haunted this uh, discussion, and a very close relative of mine has recently been diagnosed with cancer. And I, I ask you all to believe that it's extremely devastating for me. Uh, but I think that the same person was diagnosed 20 years ago with high blood pressure, which in the 19th century would probably have killed her, was diagnosed 15 years ago with thyroid problems, which perhaps 50 years ago would have killed her. And so even though I'm in the um, throes of grief, I have to confess to you, I do think that um, in the broader sense, it would be selfish of me not to realise that we have never had it so good in some respects. Thank you. Thanks for speaking so personally about your experience. So both... Thank you for that. So both of those contributors saying that, it, from, partly for sort of medical reasons, that, that there have been advances that mean we've never had it so good. Somebody's waiting here with a contribution, I hope. Yeah. Uh, first of all, support democracy in Ukraine, please. Um, secondly, I've never had it so good because 20 years ago I was starving as a student in Ukraine and today, after a long work uh, day at the bank, I came here to this debate. So, don't really have a question, just wanted to say to Rod Little, who mentioned immigration and passing, that I'm already here and I'm after his job, his house and his chewing gum. <laughs> <laughs> The lady says she's only been here a year, but is already after his job, his house, and his uh, chewing gum. Can I, I, I don't <coughs> know what conclusions you can draw, but both Actually, of the two uh, people on this side of the table are, have been chewing their way through nicotine gum, uh, uh, and that may say something about their side of the argument. It may say nothing. Good question here, yeah. Right. Yes, uh, I must say I, I'm grateful for uh, uh, the Rod Little and uh, Will Self. I, I've never, ever heard such depressing words from anybody in my whole life, and I think that... If the whole world felt and spoke the way you do, we'd all be in trouble. I mean, it, it really is horrible to listen to. I mean, and I really... But that's not the same as saying they're wrong. Will has had a privileged education, which he well knows, went to one of the finest universities in the world. And I think 
to sort of sit there and be gloomy about everything. Does that really help anybody? Is that really a reflection I really, uh, of how take you... exception to what you're saying. I'm not in the least bit gloomy. I'm a very, very happy person. Well, you I certainly think that... don't look like it. <laughs> I really am. I think the stars are God's daisy chain and daffodils are the souls of dead bunny rabbits. Thank and you. I get up in the morning but and I think... skip about the place. I'm a very active, fulfilled man. Nothing I said would imply that I was gloomy or depressed. What makes me gloomy and depressed is the cheese-pairing bean counters who inhabit the other side of this well, motion. Even there I think I made that perfectly there, clear. There okay. you see Hold it. Oh, you let, thank you. Why don't you finish the Why don't you finish, the conclude the point what, sharply and then we'll I, come I'll back to it. I'll finish the point. Well, yeah. you, you're the, the person who started the big issue was on a panel that I was with one, uh, some time ago. And he said, when, when asked the question about salaries and high salaries, he made the point, which is true. He said, we really need these people who earn a lot of money. They produce employment for people. They pay half their money back, at least in taxation in one form or another. And most important of all, they spend the money, most of them, and the spending it creates employment. You cannot alleviate poverty without prosperity. Okay. And that's why we need people that we have. Good. I'm going to just take a couple more because a lot of these have been sort of comments rather than questions. Um, and then, but I want to get a couple of questions we can bring back here. So, gentlemen up there, then the person there, and then we bring you here. Yeah. Uh, the speakers for the motion discussed <laughs> the improvements of science and technology in the past century. Um, that reminds me of a quote by Isaac Asimov, um, who said, the uh, saddest thing in life right now is that no, uh, science gathers knowledge faster than society gathers wisdom. Um, I would like to ask the, the, the panel for their opinion, please. OK, thank you. Don't worry, I've got all of these. And then we're going to just take one here and then I've got questions for the panel. Yeah. We must surely acknowledge fantastic progress in the last 50 years, the reduction in uh, prejudice, the gains in medical science, all of that stuff must be acknowledged. But surely Rod and Will make the key point that the agenda is terribly restricted while our politicians continue to define progress only by the amount that we consume, the amount that we have, the amount of growth that there is. I've been in the food industry for 40 years. It's a good example. 30, 40 years ago, 30% of household income was spent on food. For most of the last decade, we spent 10% of our income on food, and yet half of us are fat and 30% of us are obese, and half the world is starving. You know, there has to be an agenda that's beyond simply consuming more and more good things. Thank you. Let's um, pause there. Pause there. We, we, I will... There is time. We will take another round of questions, but let's put these straight away to you then. So, uh, Jesse Norman, it's come... You know, Will Self talked about cheese-pairing bean counters. Gentleman there saying that we have to define a kind of notion of the good life and of happiness that is just beyond what we consume. Well, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I've just written a book, the, part, the purpose of which, in part, is to argue for precisely this um, conception of human flourishing. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is that... Um, this is my biography of Burke, and one of the things that Burke, the point that Burke's make, essentially, in advance of Bentham, is that a human life based on a rational economic calculus as a, in a purely individualistic sense, is a life 
devoid of purpose or meaning, and that it's in our ability to join with others and to find our identity in a collective project and in therefore in society, in social order. And that's the linking thought behind my call in my speech for a proper understanding of the benefits, the privileges of being in society and the obligations that go with that. So I'm absolutely not in the cheese-pairing place that uh, I've been placed by the opposition. Um, in fact, the opposite is true. If you look at the evidence, what people need is a sense of moral purpose and um, sometimes this is provided through religion, but not necessarily, and, and moral community. And when they have that, that is a crucial element in their own personal well-being and personal... And therefore, we're more than ever understanding the limitations of a purely economic calculus. So I would absolutely associate myself with that view. And I, and I wish we had a politics that recognised these sources of wisdom and recognised words that, we, that, that respect that wisdom, words like loyalty and respect and honour that seem to have dropped out of the political lexicon altogether. Rod Little, let's put, put to you the... Uh, it came up in several different places, several different ways, several different ways that there have been advances in science, in medicine, and particularly in attitudes, uh, prejudices, attitudes to uh, those with mental health problems. All of these things count as real advances, and in those senses, we've never had it so good. Well, in those narrow senses, yes. And, and there are well, it's quite, there's not more. that narrow, is it? Science, uh, medicine... Football, football's got a lot better as well, you know. People, <laughs> people play a fluid attacking game now. It's terrific. But <laughs> lot things... Uh, you know, one would be mad to say that nothing has got got better. That, that, that would be an insane proposition, and I can't believe that, that, that Intelligence Squared would come up with it. My, my point is that, that a number of things we have lost as a consequence of the economic system we're failing, the, 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 the consequence of the economic system that we're following. One of them is social mobility, any pretense at social mobility, which was at least present. It at least gave my parents and, and my parents' friends in the, in the 50s and 60s the, 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 the suspicion that they might be able to make their way in the world and compete on an equal basis with, uh, with, with the affluent, that's gone. I mean, that, that has just disappeared. And the other thing which has gone is that we've, we've sort of given up on the, on the communitarian aspect of the, the thing which really holds society together, which is, you know, that we look out for each other. Uh, that seems to have gone as well. Uh, though I think it's very, very, very nice and undoubtedly a step forward, that Rachel has met a working-class person. Uh, the, uh, and I, I hope she was as thrilled. You did open yourself up to that. Um, do you want to just quickly come back on that, Rachel Johnson? Well, I think that, that Rod sort of is defeating his own argument by saying that mental health is a direct result of affluenza and then critiquing our side of the room, of the panel, for saying, yes, we are all better off. We do have more material possessions. We do have better health service. We do have a welfare state. As if none of this makes any difference to the comfort and our, of our lives and the prospects for our children. I think it's just utterly self-defeating, Rod's argument. Will Self, just come back on that one point you wanted to pick up. Well, I mean, the risk on mental of, health. Uh, on mental health and tolerance, I mean, yes... And, and yet, no. I mean, we live in a very interesting culture in terms of mental health. Um, 
I did a, a, a program for the BBC last year on, on selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, such as Prozac and other antidepressants. 20 million prescriptions are written in this country every year. I went into researching that documentary feeling that probably these drugs were rather over-prescribed, uh, you know, and that probably they were being handing out to people, you know, like Rod picked up onto the worried well, uh, or to people who had general stress and anxiety. Well, I discovered... And I say this in the full knowledge that statistically there will be a large number of people in this room taking these drugs, was that these drugs do not work, that the people who devised and sell them can give no explanation for their effects upon the individuals who take them, that the so-called chemical theory of depression is absolutely baseless... And that in all likelihood, the reason why people feel some amelioration from depression from taking them is because of bad side effects that the drugs are giving them. All right. I, now, I, to live in a society in relation... Right. No, no, wait That's a minute. To, this is a very important point about science and our faith in science. To live in a society... Because I don't doubt that the people who take SSRIs do feel better. That's the paradox. But they feel better because of their belief. And what are they believing in? They're believing in a kind of scientism and a kind of reduction of themselves to chemical units that is the very opposite of a soulful and embodied existence. So no wonder more and more prescriptions get written. OK, thank you. I'm, a <clears throat> I'm aware of the uh, question... I'm aware of the question about immigration. I'm, I'm going to return to that subject. But let's take another round of contributions here. The lady up there. And if we have a microphone, we'll bring it to you. I know you're, you're going to be next, and if we have another microphone here, yeah. Um, do you think that the motion that we've never had it so good creates and perpetuates complacency and stagnation within society? Shouldn't we always be striving for a better tomorrow today rather than downplaying the achievements of those before us? Thank you. Thank you. And just to explain, there was a woman there, and she moved away, and he asked the question instead. <laughs> so uh, that, and then we have contribution here, yeah. Um, it's a question for especially Rod Little, actually. Um, many people, including myself, uh, increasingly feel that inequality is probably the most divisive thing and the most harmful thing going on in our society. What can we, the downtrodden and powerless, do about it? Sorry, you just said those last few words again. I just missed the what, very last... What can we, the downtrodden and powerless, do about it? Uh, about inequality. Thank you. Question there. Hi. Um... I think throughout the talk we've been referring to we as in sort of the UK and talking about just this country. And um, today uh, Bill and Melinda Gates wrote a very interesting essay um, which was in the Wall Street Journal. And I just wanted to refer to that because they were talking about the world as a whole. Um, by almost any measure, the world has never been better off. Has, the world is better off now than it has ever been before. Extreme poverty has been cut in half over the past 25 years. And then they went on to disprove three myths. One, that um, incomes um, and other measures of human welfare um, everywhere, including the Trump card of Africa, have um, gotten better. Foreign aid has saved lives and laid the groundwork for lasting long-term economic progress, despite all the corruption that is involved with foreign aid. And lastly, that despite people's fears that medicine and lowering the risk of childbirth will lead to overpopulation, it has only led to people having smaller families um, because of families of, in Thailand, it's 1.6 children to every family. 
OK, so you evidence from the Gates Foundation that the global picture shows improvement. Yeah, questioner here. Hi, uh, my question's mainly on Will Self's point. Uh, he says that we shouldn't be arguing about consumerism and we should be talking about the soul. But arguably, on that point of view, we've never had it so good. He could, he could stand up and introduce himself as an agnostic. I came here, I saw Daniel Dennett, who's a famous atheist. A hundred years ago, you couldn't do that. People who wanted those views or who had those views were being burned at the stake, going back only a few hundred years. Nowadays, people go to yoga and meditation, learn far more about spirituality. So arguably, on a spiritual basis, we've never had it so good. Thank you. I've noticed most of these questions are, one way or another, ending up being addressing this side of the table. Have anybody got a question to put or a challenge to put to these two? Yeah, we've got a few hands there. If we can get... Keep your hand up if you all want to challenge these two here, um, and we'll hear from you, and then we're going to bring it back. Yeah. OK, and then we'll try and get it to you as well. Yeah. Hello. Um, <clears throat> from the side of the table uh, for the notion, I've heard a lot about materialism, consumerism, how we've had it. Well, we're having it really good at the moment in those terms, but is that sustainable in the future? And is it going to get better or stay good, or is it going to get worse? Sustainable, do you mean environmentally? Uh, yes, and also in a moral sense. OK, thank you. And if you pass the microphone along, I, yeah, just bring it down here. Thank you very much. That's great. I think we'll then bring it back after this. Yes. Hello. Um, I'd firstly like to um, say to Rachel Johnson, well done and congratulations for trying to put living on three pounds a, what do you say, a day for food for a whole family. One pound a day. One pound a day for a whole family in a good light. It must have been very difficult. However, although you experienced a week of this, it's all right for you to go home at the end of the week because you don't have to live through that. Also, there's been a big focus on mental health. I have to say, as I've experienced mental health and mental health services, I have to say they are absolutely shit, forgive my language. It is disgusting. I, I was learning about um, the suffragettes today and I had to remind my teacher to her horror that people still do get tube fed, um, like the suffragettes who went on hunger strikes did. Um, people do still get put in straitjackets, people do still get sedated if they are being too out of order. So I can't believe yeah, maybe it's been better, but it's just not good enough. It's okay. absolutely not good enough. So we've never had it so good. That's absolute bullshit. Okay. <laughs> All right. We'll, we'll take a very last short, short one from here, and then we're going to hear the panel's response. Short as you, if you can. I was actually going to ask something entirely different, but just to the, in response to that last question, we may not have had it. It may have been. It may not be great now, but surely it was considerably worse in the past. Sure, we still have straitjackets and some people are still tube-fed, but previously you were burnt at the stake. And I suffered, I suffered mental illness in the past. I would have been burnt at the stake too. I think it's just about as good as we've ever had it. And does the panel agree? OK, thank you. We've, we've now got a range of questions to bring to everyone here. So let's uh, put that to you first of all, Rachel Johnson, the idea that uh, it was all right for you, your experience with uh, living on a pound a day and seeing families feeding uh, themselves on three pounds uh, a week, rather, uh, three pounds a week and a pound a day in your case, uh, but you could walk away at the end of that experience. They can't. Yeah, no, well, I never claimed I wasn't... I'm not unbelievably, unspeakably privileged and... Um, of course I knew that after a week I was going to go home. And that's what made it possible. And the whole point of the exercise was to bring to public attention something that people do not know, which is that there exists 
genuine food poverty in, the, in this country as a result of, and we were talking about food banks earlier. They don't know that? Yeah, they... You mean you don't know that? Well, Rod Diddle, how many food banks do you think there are? You don't know. She's asking you a question, how many food banks are there? I don't know. OK, 500,000 people are using food banks and the number has, go has gone up by 11 fold. There are four near me in an affluent part of Kent. OK, let's... Um, you've, you've made that point, I think. And I'm also being challenged on mental health. I, and I, I think, think it was it's... just to you personally, yeah. Was it? Well... I don't think it was just to you. It was, it was just the... the, the it no. said the mental health services had improved. And yeah. the question said, for her, her and her experience, suggests they haven't. I think it's a, it's a testament to the fact that we are much more open about mental health in this country, that you could stand up in front of 800 people and talk about your own experience, and I, that wouldn't have happened even 20 years ago. So congratulations. I hope you get the help you need, and I'm sorry about the experiences you had. Every single family in Britain has some sort of mental health issue going on in it. We're all aware of that. It's not okay. no longer a dark secret. Uh, let me what put, was the actual no, question, though? No, you've, you've, you've addressed it. Don't worry. We've got other people I want to include. The um, Will Self put to you this point about religious tolerance, because you, you were trying to speak on a non-material, non-economistic plane, and there's a, a question you're saying that you could be open about agnosticism and people can be... There's a much greater variety and pluralism and tolerance of difference, spiritually, religiously, etc. and surely that represents an advance. Well, I mean, as long as you subscribe to the religion of neoliberalism, you're absolutely fine. As long as you believe, as this gentleman does, that the rich getting endlessly richer is the only way to guarantee uh, that the poor will get richer as well. If you're, a, if you're a heretic from that state-inculcated religion, you're in quite a lot of trouble. But we don't know how people felt in the Geneva of Calvin or in the Germany of Luther, uh, when they experienced the liberty of conscience that came with Protestantism. We don't know how people felt sitting under the Bodhi tree when they heard the Gautama's message. But you're a novelist. Part of the job is to imagine no. and empathise, isn't it? To put yourself in those people's oh, shoes and imagine. for heaven's imagine. sake, Jonathan. You know, do you get out of the bed and put on a prosaic suit? <laughs> <laughs> I have, a sense that's a, I have a sense that's a line you've used before. No, Let me ask you, Rod Diddle... It is not, um, I assure you. I just coined it in my capacity as a novelist. <laughs> Rod Diddle... Let, Let me say this, and I, and I say it with a, a spirit of passion. I ask you to reject this motion, not because I don't think that there are great things about the society, not because I'm a happy person, not a happy person, because I am quite a happy person, not because I don't think there's fabulous things all around us, but because lots of that way of viewing the world, I believe, is impoverishing. It's impoverishing for you and it's impoverishing for us as a society. It's just the wrong way of looking at things. That's all. OK. Rod, Rod I just wanted... <laughs> slowing us down a bit. But Rod, Rod Little, just to, I want you to address the, the questioner at the back there, the woman who mentioned... Uh, the evidence on the Gates Foundation that on th at least three different measures, uh, you know, the global picture is improved and that poverty, extreme poverty globally is down by half, according to those figures. The evidence she was suggesting says the global picture at least has got better. Uh, the global picture, according to uh, uh, hunger and, and uh, malnutrition, has certainly got better, yes. yes. We are now in, in danger of... Uh, of more people dying as a consequence of, obese, uh, of obesity and obesity-related diseases than uh, 
uh, are now dying of malnutrition, which I suppose is a sort of step forward. Um, yeah, they, they call it innutrition now, is yes. the buzzword in uh, global health statistics. But, uh, you know, again, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't dissent from that. My, my point is we're talking about you have... We have never had it so good. We, I talk to mean us, and I think you look inside us. I tried to do what Will probably rightly said we couldn't do, which is to look inside the souls of us. And we don't seem to be terribly happy by every means that I have available to, to, to look at this country. We do not seem to be happy. Uh, one more point on, from, the, from the other chap who asked, what can we do about inequality? Uh, well, join the Labour Party. Uh, I, you know, it's probably the best I can offer. Uh, but also, uh, double. Didn't work out that well for inequality, did it? Uh, not terribly well. No, no, absolute <laughs> fucking nightmare. Uh, <laughs> uh, and fair point. Uh, but a doubling, a doubling of the minimum wage wouldn't come amiss. Uh, that's why all those firms are coming back. Uh, yeah, can I way. just say a word that's, about this? Because it's come up a lot, and it is charity. Yeah. You know, Thomas Hobbes, the philosopher, said charity exists to lighten the burden of compassion in the wealthy man. We now live in a society that is dominated. Rachel went on about the big society. Doubtless Jesse did as well. I ask you, do you really want to live in a society that is, you know, determined by the charitable impulse in this way? All you hear about is charity, 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 Red Nose Day, Red Buttock Day, Red Genitals Day. Give your money. And this in a society with greater inequality, greater wealth inequality than they've been for decades. Is there not a correlation there? Thank you. Rachel starved herself for charity. Thank you. Let's, we're going to start, because of where, where, where we are with the clock, we're going to start the voting now. I'm, I'm hoping people... Are, I'm going to try and get more questions in if I can, but I, the time is against us. We, uh, you'll see our friends are walking around now with ballot boxes. You've got the um, cards. Uh, you, using the perforation, uh, break the card, either a yes goes in or a no goes in. Uh, or, if you are on the fence and you're abstaining, put in the whole card. Uh, this is... Shh. This is a secret ballot, and as I've mentioned before, a silent ballot. There is no need for you to speak while you're voting, because we're now going to hear closing arguments from our speakers. Uh, there's not much they can do to shift your view, because you will be voting. But let's, in reverse order, hear closing arguments, and that means uh, a minute or two to you, Jesse Norman. Uh, so sorry, um, Rod Little is going to go first. Uh, Rod Little, you already uh, did. Uh, address this point about what people can do about it, but perhaps say more on that if you can in the in your closing remarks well, and address well, anything else that's well, come well, up on, what? on this issue. What people can do about the inequality oh, you've described, yes, yes, you very movingly have described Riot. inequality. So here we are. You've got a couple of minutes to closing arguments on the whole thing. Rod Little. Okay. Shh. So oh, stay in your chair. Stay in your chair. Oh I, no, I like it here. Well, I feel in charge. This, um, we just reject panels. this motion. At least partly because that phrase, uh, you've never had it so good, together with its bastard kid sister, we're all in it together, is used by that lot to perpetuate the inequalities which are making this country less than it could be. And it's less than it could be which is the problem. It's less than it could be, as Will says, spiritually, but also, as I would put it, 
we are less happy about who we are, about what we are, and we're less happy for bloody good reasons. That these inequalities exist, that we're consumer-led and consumer-driven, that we've lost something about our lives, which is the way we relate to other people, because of an atomized or uh, existence or an anomie, as Durkheim would have put it, that, that, that has invaded us and is a direct consequence and is necessary to the economic policies which Jesse Norman's party follows and which, indeed, to its eternal shame, Tony Blair's party followed as well. So reject the motion on political grounds as well as on spiritual grounds. Thank you. Thank you. Let's get a uh, closing remark from you, Rachel Johnson. And uh, you, am I, you're all right. If everyone's going to do that, you might as well. Um, why don't you uh, address, if you can, this notion that uh, is it sustainable? You've said all these, the numbers are all going up, but is it sustainable, both economic, environmentally, but also morally? Well, I don't want to. I don't want to answer that, Jonathan. I want. To, I don't care how you vote. I think you should. You, we, you should vote for the motion. It's unbelievably gloomy, reductive and pessimistic if you don't. We've had it good and it's, it's our duty not to regard the world as getting worse all the time but to pass it on better, to make sure it's better rather than just assume it's getting worse. The charity sector, don't knock the charity sector, Will. It is desperately needed. I'm not going to go on about my starvation on Benefit Street again because I'm getting such a lot of stick for it. Well, if you had any faith in don't you you just wait will you just wait the reason we're unhappy is not because we've got too little it's because we've got too much choice in material goods people unhappiness and depression is much more a first world problem than you this side is letting on and is acknowledging just on a lighter note just think of this in terms of coffee in my lifetime coffee has gone from a watery fluid that looked and tastes like bovril to a roasty, toasty, bespoke beverage that you can get from the push of a button in your own kitchen. Don't knock this. This is, this is a material advantage that has made all our lives better, every one of us in this room. Anyway, to, to sum up, as Macaulay said, on what principle is it? We, are not, we see nothing but improvement behind us but we are to expect nothing but deterioration before us. I beg you to reject the box set of doom that we've heard from Will and Rod, amusing though they are. Please do not believe in the audacity of nope or of dope, which is what Will was talking about in terms of Prozac. I beg you to support the motion. Thank you. Uh, some closing remarks from you, Will Self. <laughs> I love to walk, often across the city. I once flew to Los Angeles and walked for eight days around LA without ever stepping in a wheeled vehicle. 
People say you can't walk in LA. It's a beautiful city to walk in. Unlike in English suburbia, the Los Angelinos tend to do all their different suburban houses in different wacky architectural styles. And there are nice broad sidewalks. It's sunny the whole time. But I also like walking across London. Free to walk. Just breathe, walk, think, meditate. I really, really urge you to get out and have a decent walk. <laughs> Preferably to a random destination, one that is not economically compelled. That's really all I have to say to you. Be happy, <laughs> live long, prosper. One other thing. You may notice that the supporters of this motion both promoted books, either by them or by their siblings. <laughs> And I should have promoted one by him. And I failed to mention that he is, his latest book is called Umbrella. And I also failed to mention this. I've been paid perfectly well to do this. I don't require to come along with a little stool round my neck. You don't, but I'm not flogging you stuff on top of it, unlike yes, the materialists on that end of the table. My brother's book is called Turn You've Around done it. You've Challenge. Already done it. You've already done it. You've already done it. We're not going to let you do it again. Now, um, seductive price point of seventeen ninety nine, which no <laughs> consumer thinks is anywhere near eighteen pounds. <laughs> <laughs> Jesse Norman, you're, you're, you, it falls to you to give us, uh, to give us the last word. Uh, your fellow uh, debater refused to answer the question that hadn't been put by me, but had been put by uh, one of our members of our audience who said, is, is it sustainable morally and e ecologically? And there was also a, a, a note, a dissenting note from someone in the audience who said, you know, even if it is better now, shouldn't we always strive to, to make life even better and therefore not be complacent enough to say we've never had it so good. So if you would deal with those two questions that have come from our audience members, all the better. Jesse Norman. Uh, Jonathan, that's a wonderful attempt to tie me to your agenda, but if it's OK with you, I'll give a closing speech that actually addresses the defects of our opposition's um, comments. Um, you will have noticed, ladies and gentlemen, how triumphantly they fulfilled every caricature that one could possibly have wanted for miserabilistic, um, pessimistic, gloomstering lugubriosity. Um, but lurking underneath this farrago of misdirection um, was uh, a couple of points that might just be worth picking up. First of all, I was amused, I'm sure you were enchanted to see um, Rod uh, defending the Labour government's um, uh, position on inequality since it had, roughly speaking, the largest amount of money that's ever been had by any British government that could have been used to uh, assuage it. And yet, real wages for the bottom third of this country did not rise after 2003 put that thought in your mind. Um, and uh, former Prime Minister Blair, Rod, I'm sure I'm looking forward to your explanation. We won't hear it, sadly, because the moment has passed, of how Mr Blair can run off um, around the world enriching himself on the back of his uh, international contacts. That's the explanation. Will, Didn't you realise? Will, Will um, was most magnificent, um, but tragically magnificent in his incoherence. Um, it would have been wonderful to address uh, the issue. It's not a point of contention between our two sides. I absolutely agree that this country, um, in many ways, has become more individualistic um, and more economistic, and our politics has become more individualistic and more economistic than we have any right to want or expect. That's completely consistent with the position that we are taking. The question ultimately is this. Immanuel Kant, that great figure, says we live under the regulative hope 
or that our lives can be lived free, freely and with, you know, in a moral community that gives them their point and their purpose. And at the end of the day, you either feel positively about the situation, about the facts that we've laid out before you, which are pretty dispositive, but about how we're supposed to think about them, how we're supposed to interpret them. You either think the glass is half full and we can go on and make better these moral and spiritual defects that are so obvious in our society at the moment, or you think there's nothing to be done and we can just cross our hands put our hands, heads down and forget about it. And I put it to you that that simply isn't an adequate position. We have to get up there, we have to do something about it, it's our obligation to do that. And I put it to you, ladies and gentlemen, that we must reject that, we must reject that false gloom and uh, with it reject this hopeless opposition and accept the motion. Thank you very much indeed. I don't know about we've never had it so good, but we don't yet have it, the result of your vote, but it's coming in seconds. And so uh, while we wait for that, um, you, you just were shaking your head, Will Self, at the notion of you as an embodiment of lugubriosity and other things that were thrown at you. Do you want to just come back at Jesse Norman? Well, because well you've got the foldy roll and tra-la-la. I smite him with my pig's bladder. Also sounded like he was campaigning for votes when he was up there. Uh, no, he, he mischaracterised what Rod and I have been saying. We never suggested that people shouldn't, you know, strive to make things better, did we? We never suggested... Anyway, the motion doesn't propose that you're a glass half full or a glass half, half empty type of person. It proposes that everybody in the country feels they have some sort of psychic bumper full of vintage Bollinger that they're lifting to their lips. And that clearly isn't the case. So, you know, I, I must protest most vigorously, not only that Jessie Norman is not a large black woman who sings beautifully, but a, <laughs> but a thin white man who dresses rather boringly, <laughs> but, but that he willfully mischaracterises what Rod and I have been saying. And Rod, dear Rod, you know, I used to work for Rod at the Today programme and I would never be happier than I, I saw his rubicund and at that time youthful face looking at me across the desks full of tedious BBC hacks. Here was a man out on a limb. Here was a man dancing on the high wire. Here was a happy man. A happy man. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. That slightly felt like a round of just a minute. And brilliantly, you've talked us up to the uh, imaginary whistle. Uh, and I can tell you now the final results. When you came in, uh, those of you who were don't knows and on the fence stood at 29%. Uh, that number has cratered to just 3%. So these four speakers have done a great job of shifting you. Uh, now the figures stand as follows. Those of you who are for the motion that we've never had it so good were, as you came in, 47%, now stand at... 37%. <laughs> Those of you who are against the motion and believe that, no, we have not ever had it so good, or rather just you disagree with we've never had it so good, stand at 60%. 60%. So... <laughs> the motion is defeated. The motion is defeated. The, the motion is defeated. Uh, you've already done it, but let's thank, finally, in our remaining moments, our four brilliant speakers, Jesse Norman, Rachel Johnson, Will Self and Rod Little. Thank you very thank much. You. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Squared debates, talks and discussions free on iTunes. If you'd like to find out more about our events, 
sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com or follow us on Facebook and Twitter. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.